The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. With pleasure. It's a really important part of our lives. Um, but um, it's, it's taken me a long time to wrap my mind and my heart around Buddhist teachings about pleasure. Uh, many years ago, I took a, a year-and-a-half-long class on the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length suttas in Pali. We were reading them in English. But I realized after that course that a quick reading of the suttas would leave the impression that pleasure is always bad. And it, it would take a, a careful reading to recognize that the threat that Buddha warns against isn't pleasure itself, but an unmindful response to it. Pleasure in its various forms is not inherently bad. And in fact, a couple forms of pleasure are actually instrumental in achieving, well, mindfulness and higher states of concentration and even nirvana. Buddha did say in several suttas that if we really knew the suffering hidden within sensual pleasure, we'd certainly avoid it. But we don't have to run from pleasure like it's a bear on the attack. The danger is in the way we deal with pleasure. We're encouraged by Western culture and its economy to seek sensory pleasure wherever we can. Remember the old Coca-Cola ad, you only go around once in life, so grab it. And there's also a widespread belief that if we can just have enough pleasures, they'll add up to happiness. Now, getting what we want can definitely put us in a good mood. But moods pass, and often quickly. I've never known anyone for whom any amount of pleasure ever added up to lasting happiness. In fact, the stress of getting and accumulating pleasure usually has the opposite effect. In a sutta called The Greater Mass of Suffering, Buddha talked about the five chords of sensual pleasure. These include things seen by the eye that are wished for, desired, and provocative of lust. Similar chords exist for the ear, nose, tongue, and the body's tactile receptors. Each of the five senses will give rise to sensory experience of pleasure 
and to desire in various degrees of intensity. Therefore, pleasure tied to the senses, in other words, tied to the world around us, always carries the danger of suffering or dukkha. I see heads nodding and that's a thrill for me. Buddha then gave examples of dangers that are associated with pleasures that come from the senses. With sensual pleasure as the cause, kings quarrel with kings, mother quarrels with son, brother with sister, friend with friend, and they attack each other with fists, clods, sticks, or knives. A mass of suffering here and now, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. Driven by pleasure, the Sutta tells us, armies go to war and are splashed with boiling liquids, their heads cut off by swords, or men are driven to crime, they break into houses, ambush highways, seduce others' wives. When they're caught, kings order tortures. And I love this list. The porridge pot, the polished shell shave, the rahu's mouth, the wood dress, and here are a couple I can understand, meat hooks and lye pickling. The ones that I have no idea what they're talking about actually scare me more than the, the two I can identify. So Buddha asks, what bhikkhus is the escape in the case of sensual pleasures? It is the abandonment of desire and lust for sensual pleasures. Now after hearing this list of the dangers, we might consider becoming ascetics but Buddha tried that very, very hard. And in fact, he said there, had, there was no one who'd ever been more ascetic than he was. There, when I was in, in Bangkok a while ago, I saw a statue of Buddha that showed how he was described in the suttas where you could see his backbone through his stomach. He was so thin because he would live on two grains of rice a day. So he rejected asceticism after giving it a really good try because it didn't lead to enlightenment. What needs to be rooted out is not pleasure as it naturally occurs in our lives, but the desire for more pleasure which almost always accompanies it. In a sutta called The Greater Discourse to Sachaka, Buddha gives a pretty clear explanation <clears throat> excuse me, of how to deal with this. 
He says, when a pleasant feeling arises, quote, in an untaught, ordinary person, he lusts after pleasure and continues to lust after pleasure. So from that first pleasant feeling, desire begins to grow and continues to grow into longing and craving. And there's another problem that, pre- that pleasure presents to the untrained mind. And that is that when the pleasant feeling ceases, it causes a painful feeling. And the Buddha said, that person sorrows, grieves, and laments. <coughs> Both the pleasant and the painful feelings invade his mind and remain. All of this happens because the mind is untrained. In contrast, when pleasant feelings arise in a well-taught, noble disciple, he does not lust after more pleasure. The pleasant feeling ceases and that does give rise to painful feeling. But, the quote goes on, the disciple does not sorrow, grieve, and lament. So we can avoid sustained suffering by avoiding the tendency to want more pleasure whenever it arises. Now, even when we don't get caught up in wanting more, pleasure does still have the downside that we feel a sense of loss when it ends. This is even for the trained mind. But with mindfulness, we can let that uh, sense of loss pass naturally without having it grow and continue to torment us as it does when we're not mindful. So to recap, suffering results from two processes that ordinarily come from the experience of worldly pleasure. The first is a craving for more, And the second is a sense of loss when the pleasant experience is over. Training the mind can completely end the craving for more. And it can greatly ease the distressing sense of loss when the pleasure ends. And here's the good news. The really good news, this training is accomplished by what we're doing here. It's nothing that you haven't already encountered. (laughs) Daily meditation practice is crucial in learning to notice our feelings and discern what has caused them. The untrained mind is so busy 
reacting to feelings, that it usually has little understanding why those feelings have come to exist. Sitting daily trains us to be aware of what is happening within our minds and hearts. When we're aware of this, we can discern what caused those reactions that we're going through, usually over time, by recognizing patterns that happen. When A happens, B follows, and C, boom, we feel bad or suffering. So we just get used to watching. And after a while, we begin to put two and two together. We begin to see that when we experience worldly pleasures, like a new car, for example, isn't that a great feeling? You drive home that new car, you get it all the way home, you haven't crashed it into anything. It smells great, it looks good, and you can't wait to show it to people. Well, the pleasure only lasts so long. The mind begins to take it for granted if the source of the pleasure continues. And then if we lose it, say the car is stolen or it turns out to be a lemon, we feel wretched. When we watch this sort of thing happen over and over, we gradually learn to hold things lightly like a butterfly that's landed in our hand. We come to remember whenever we're we're dealing with pleasure and loss, the three characteristics of all experience, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, suffering, and not-self. Everything changes. It all has the potential for suffering. And none of it should be taken personally as mine or me. Over time, we come to know on a deep level that pleasant feelings are temporary and we can simply accept with gratitude when they come our way, knowing they will pass. Neuroscience has shown that our brains have an innate tendency toward negativity. And this can be countered by mindfully savoring the pleasures that arise without clinging to them or chasing after more. So in other words, there's a really good element to worldly pleasures. When they inevitably end, like that butterfly on your hand, that eventually flies away, we just have to restrain ourselves 
from grabbing after it. And the second step to reduce the suffering from pleasure is to let any disappointment that arises just pass through us. You know, there's sort of an automatic tendency to resist, to try to keep ourselves from feeling it, either shutting down or indulging in some distractions. But let ourselves feel it. Remaining aware of the feeling of disappointment serves a couple of important purposes. One is that when we notice this consequence of pleasure, it helps train the mind. And the other is that holding any of our suffering in a loving awareness helps us heal. Nothing helps healing like kind attention. We know this when we're sick and a friend comes to visit. And you know, we can always give this gift to ourselves. In fact, we're probably the best person on earth to give ourselves this gift. Kind attention. This approach of holding everything lightly is a very open-hearted way to live, letting both pleasure and pain come and go as they will. Later on in the sutta, I was just talking about the greater discourse to Sachaka. Buddha notes, it is not easy while living in a home for lay people to live the holy life utterly perfect and pure as a polished shell. I love the poetry of Buddha's teachings. So what he's saying is we should not be discouraged if we think we're falling short of some ideal. It's hard. We have to keep in mind that this is a gradual process to unlearn our old relationship with pleasure. We just need to continue meditating and remain as mindful as possible during our daily life. Every link that we cut from the chain of suffering improves our lives. And Buddha declared in several suttas that countless laymen and women had achieved complete enlightenment during his lifetime. Buddha confessed that when he was a bodhisattva, not yet fully enlightened, he couldn't give up wanting pleasure completely. He had that desire for pleasure even as a bodhisattva. In fact, it was the memory of a particular kind of pleasure that convinced Buddha to give up asceticism 
and find the middle way. This was an incident in his childhood when he was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And his father was off attending to his royal duties. Buddha was, he said, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. And he entered upon and abided in the first jhana, a blissful, excuse me, a blissful state that results from deep concentration. Looking back on this memory, Buddha realized this was the trailhead of the path to enlightenment. Because here was, quote, a pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. So knowing that the pleasure of concentration has no downside and is always available, this bodhisattva was freed from desire, from sense-based pleasure, so that he could become a Buddha. This pleasure occurs whenever we're mindful because it's an element of mindfulness. Just a few days ago, I realized that I had experienced it as I went about my day. It was the last Saturday for Christmas and I was having a pleasant day. I thought that all of my shopping was done. I was ready for the holiday. I could stay home and warm and cozy in my house. Didn't have to go out. And I realized that I had forgotten to get something. And I had to go to the grocery store the last Saturday before Christmas. So I wasn't happy with that. And I got into my car. And I realized... It's going to be really crowded with people who are in a hurry. And I said to myself, all right, I'm going to remain mindful and patient and calm. And while I was in the store, I went out of my way to be courteous to people, even the ones who weren't being particularly courteous to me. And I even exchanged a few friendly remarks with strangers. And as I drove home, I noticed that I had a feeling that was much more pleasant than the way I had felt before I realized I had to go to the grocery store. And when I recognized that surprising fact... I saw that I was experiencing the pleasure that comes from mindfulness and from the loving kindness, the metta that I had while I was shopping. Most of us need to make a point of looking for the pleasure that comes from our practice 
in order to recognize it. And making the effort to do this is really worthwhile because this pleasure is heightened when we focus on it. And I am going to just say a word of caution in case you have an active imagination. Look for this pleasure and try not to imagine it because it only works if it's real. You know, I, and I, I'm speaking from experience here. I have fallen into the trap when I've been doing concentration practice of saying, oh, there's that pleasure. And it, it's not. It was, I was just making it up. But, but you'll know if it's not the real thing because it, it won't work. So... Um, Mindfulness can protect us from the dangers of worldly pleasures while providing this kind of a pleasure that has no downside. This pleasure that comes from a calm and alert mind will promote concentration. This is what I'm talking about, it it working. It will help us to concentrate by helping to hold the attention where we direct it. This is a, a natural thing about our attention. It wants to go toward pleasure. And again, this is a pleasure that's not based on sensory Um, you know, the five senses. Another benefit of the pleasure of mindfulness and concentration is that it supports our general well-being. It does make us happy. It will also motivate us to meditate daily and to continue along the Eightfold Path. And by doing that, it further (coughs) multiplies our opportunities to enjoy it. So, I wish you lots of um, good experiences in watching sensory pleasure come and go how you relate to it, how it affects you, and particularly exploring the free of suffering pleasure that is inherent in our practice. Thank you. So now we have a little over 10 minutes to um, deal with any questions or comments you have, preferably about the topic. You know, one of the things that I love about um, discussion in the Sangha is that over the years I've observed that 
uh, we learn more from each other often than we do from the teacher. Um, if, if I say this stuff, it has a certain amount of credibility. But when you hear other people's experience with it, it's, it's actually more credible, I think. So I'd love to have you explore together your experiences or your questions about pleasure. Anyway, I'd like to thank you for everything you said. I know why I was drawn to come here tonight in the midst of my flutter. <laughs> I'm leaving on a retreat <clears throat> tomorrow, but I'm, my house is like a hurricane. <laughs> and everything you said is so really relevant to me. And uh, the reality, you know, I'm at the age that uh, I haven't had too much... Uh, opportunities for the um, the falling into the trap of the sensuality. As you get older, there are a lot of gifts that come. <laughs> and, you know, the hormones change, and when you get around the people with a lot of hormones, all you young people, you realize what a gift it is of getting old. I mean... <laughs> yeah, but, but it was a gift being there <laughs> to... Uh, Life is good. And <laughs> Thank you. But awareness. Over here. You know, I, too, related to much of what you said, and particularly it reminded me that when I uh, experience something pleasurable, uh, an experience, for example, with my family that just went beautifully and feels just warm and fuzzy, I think the, the danger of that is the expectation that next time it will be the same. You know, all those uh, problems and difficulties that we've experienced, they're all gone now. And now we just sail on through. And it's, um, it's really a trap <laughs> to expect that because it, it just doesn't work that way. So I'm trying to learn to appreciate those times without the expectations of what comes next. Yes, thank you for saying that because it reminds me uh, just a few days ago we went to see all my cousins and and I realized afterwards I love I love my cousins I was looking forward 
to uh, being with them so much. And, and indeed, it was a wonderful time. Um, but I realized afterwards that, that I, I felt uh, unsatisfied, sort of a dissatisfaction, and I realized it was that um, in former times we had seemed to connect more uh, strongly and intimately, in, uh, uh, the conditions being a little bit different. Um, this time we were all in one group, and, and I, I, I just I think it's a little bit harder to have close conversations with one, although I did have some good conversations when people drifted around, but not, not, and, and I realized on the way home it was comparing mind. It was because I was comparing to former moments of, of what I saw then as intimacy and, uh, and missing them. And then I saw how uh, uh, really, uh, truly silly that was. <laughs> and, and just was able to, uh, to see it very differently after that. And, and with much more pleasure, too. You don't have any questions? Took me 20 years to figure it out. <laughs> You've got it down? This is something that um, came up for me. I was back visiting family around Christmas time. Um, and that's the pleasure of being right. <laughs> I, I realized I've been doing opinion practice um, because I was with uh, a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas about God and the universe and politics and... Um, you know, there's a way in which I can hold those lightly. And yet there's, there's still an element of... Um, I don't think I can just say, well, all opinions are equally valid or all ideas are equally valid. You know, I think there is some kind of misinformation or... You know, so to try to hold how you see things in an appropriate way. So I wonder if there's anything that you could tell us about how you work with uh, opinions and, um, <coughs> I'll say right and wrong, but maybe even you know something on a more subtle level than that. Of, uh, well, <clears throat> I think that we may have at some point in our lives had the primordial experience of being right and 
it, it probably just felt wonderful. And I, I think I had it once. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then, you know, I've spent the rest of my life trying to get back to that, that feeling. And, um, and I think one of the things that makes it so sticky and, you know, I opened it hearing what you have to say about this is the, the fact that um, I'm taking it personally. You know, I'm forgetting the anatta aspect of it and thinking that this is my opinion. You know, there might be, I don't know, three or four billion people on the planet with the same opinion, but it's mine. And it defines me. And that makes it really sticky for me. What do you think? Um. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me there's often mixed motivation. For one thing, one of the things that I do as a scientist is I study climate change. And so I think there are things that a whole group of us have been studying where we try to inform other people about how their actions are going to affect the whole environment into the future. So I don't hold that as strictly my opinion, you know, like my opinion versus other people that just say, hey, you know, I got a big car, I love to drive, and, you know, 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 these scientists are, you know, you know, or just they're they're just shooting off their mouths just like everyone else. <laughs> so, you know, I want to be respectful of the motivation to um improve life, but then not get caught in having to convince somebody that their opinion or their view on things is um not only wrong, but maybe malicious or, um, you know, is, is going to be harmful in a way that, mm-hmm. that they don't realize. So, that, I mean, that's, that's kind of what motivated that question yeah. for me. And, and it sounds to me like you have a real recognition that getting caught up in that is not going to serve you well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know when... When anger, you know, like it, it can easily go from trying to ex- exchange information to <laughs> <laughs> to something where there's a much more uh, uh, un, uh, unpleasant visceral experience. So I think, you know, even without having such important information at our fingertips. We all relate (laughs) to where you're coming from. So, uh, yeah. Thank you. One more minute. Um, One of the uh, things that comes to mind for me as you talk about pleasure and this season is chocolate. 
And I really struggle with that. I mean, there's a lot of chocolate around, and chocolate followed by chocolate is more pleasurable. So <laughs> I don't know if anybody's figured that out. I mean, I just... Has anyone figured that out? <laughs> I mean, there comes to be a point when I have to say stop, you know. Yeah. I mean, I threw a bunch away yesterday. Yeah. Well, yeah. It is hard. It's hard when we live in a culture where we're really um, flooded with the opportunity and the encouragement to take advantage of sensual pleasure. Um, I, I, I don't think Buddha had any concept that. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, probably, he probably didn't have chocolate either. <laughs> yes, it's hard. It's hard, and uh, I'll leave you with that. It is. It's, as Buddha said, you know, it's it's very very difficult <clears throat> for lay people you know, living in this world to um, get our practice to a polished shell. But it's possible. So, and, and every bit that we can cut off that chain of suffering liberates us. So, Happy New Year to you all. Thank you.